build back better. These specific words were not uttered by President Biden on March 1st during his State of the Union address. Each year, the federal government spends about $700 billion of entitlement system uh, assistance on people who are in the upper half of the income distribution in the United States. Wait, say that again? On, in the upper half? Yes. So $700 billion each year to individuals that are in the upper half of the U.S. income distribution. So we can Am have- Am I getting an entitlement program and I don't know? <laughs> How is this happening? Are you missing out? <laughs> Am I missing out? <laughs> Did you know? The Civil War pension was still being doled out in 2020, just two years ago, which was 155 years after the Civil War ended. But, but how is this even humanly possible? It's a great story of longevity, love, and marriage, which anecdotally highlights the excesses of America's entitlement programs. Hey there, news peelers. Today is March 11th, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of Appeal.News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this in the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel Dot News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. On the morning of President Biden's State of the Union address, a full-page paid advertisement appeared in the Wall Street Journal print edition with the following headline. Build Back Better is Wrong for America. This ad was signed by 373 economists, including a Nobel laureate, heads of U.S. economic institutions, such as former Fed members, and professors from prestigious universities, all of whom denounced President Biden's Build Back Better agenda and disagreed with the claim that it would alleviate the pains of inflation. If you recall, Build Back Better was a $2.2 trillion social welfare and climate spending program that was boastfully compared to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society agenda back in the 1960s. Although the president did not specifically mention Build Back Better, he did try to make the case for at least parts of that vision. According to the New York Times, now that we are in an election year, the president is essentially reframing, quote, his domestic agenda away from the sweeping aspirations of his first year in office. Senator Joe Manchin, who had rung the death knell to the Build Back Better program, and who, by the way, sat on the GOP side during the president's speech, was not impressed. In his response the next day, Senator Manchin said this, quote, I've never found out that you can lower costs by spending more. <laughs> Regardless of your party affiliation, you gotta admit, it's a good comeback. Now, we don't want to get into the politics of this. That's not what we do here at the PLOT News. We're interested in something more elemental. We're interested in learning about the history of social benefits programs, which some people call entitlements. To do this, we spoke with Professor John Kogan, who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of public policy program at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Among his many publications, Professor Kogan 
has written the following book, The High Cost of Good Intentions, A History of U.S. Federal Entitlement Programs, which we also talk about. To learn more about Professor Kogan, his projects and publications, visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Kogan and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Kogan, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Professor Kogan, to veer our podcast conversation in the right direction, I want to begin with the basics. What are entitlements? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Adele. And uh, it's, a great, it's a great question to start off with. Uh, because entitlements mean different things uh, to different people. To some people, uh, an entitlement is a uh, an unearned benefit. It is unearned benefit. Unearned benefit. It is a handout. Uh, it's a derogatory term uh, to those individuals. Um, in fact, if you were to mention, if you were to be giving a talk. And you were to mention the words social security and entitlement in the same sentence to a group of senior citizens, you'd be lucky to get out of the room with your head still on your shoulders. (laughs) And so, but to a lot of other people, uh, an entitlement is a uh, a firm and absolute uh, commitment by the government to provide an individual with assistance. Okay. And neither are really true. So I think we should probably take the, it's a loaded term. So let's take it out of the loaded. And let me give you a a very uh, sort of common sense definition of what an entitlement is. Please do. So an entitlement is a government program for our purposes uh, that gives an individual or a business or another government entity or any institution, a legal right to receive a benefit in the form of cash or in the form of a service to anyone who meets the qualification requirements established in the law. So it's a mouthful, but essentially it's a legally binding obligation on the part of the United States government to provide an individual for the most part with a benefit uh, so long as that person meets the eligibility requirements under the law. So, example, a person who's worked 10 years in the labor force and paid in Social Security taxes is entitled to receive a benefit of a certain amount each month when they reach age 62. A person that has a low income. In that case, that is, one would argue that that is earned, Right. Yes, one could argue absolutely that is earned, right? Hence your comment about speaking in front of social senior citizens and using the term (laughs) entitlement. And and yes, uh, that makes sense. That's right. Now, I would have to say, we get into this later, it's not necessarily the case that all of it for social security is earned. And we can talk about that, that later. But you're right. It's an earned right benefit. Another example of an entitlement would be food stamps where, or SNAP benefits, where the qualifying requirement is that an individual or family's income is below some government specified threshold. And any family that has such an income is entitled to receive a certain allotment of food stamps each month. Is that like below the poverty level? Well, it's uh, below about 130% of poverty in most areas. Okay. Okay. But those are two good examples of entitlement programs. And at the federal level, when we think about entitlements, think of programs like social security and food stamps, but Medicare, 
Medicaid, um, supplemental security income, the earned income tax credit, child nutrition subsidies, health care subsidies for insurance under the Affordable Care Act. Those are all examples of entitlement programs where individuals have this legally binding obligation or uh, legally binding uh, commitment by the government that they will receive assistance. We're used to the presence of these programs, entitlement programs, or however you want to um, um, define them or call them. We're so used to their presence in our government and its bloated budget. Uh, and of course, some in governments such as Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia want to limit it. Regardless, what I want to know is, when did they start? I mean, you know, <laughs> there was a time that Americans weren't so used to it, right? Right. So, yeah, entitlements are as old as the Republic. That old? As old as the Republic. In fact, uh, the very first entitlement was created right at the very beginning of the United States by the very first Congress. And it was a disability program for Revolutionary War soldiers. And in fact, Adele, if you look at entitlements in the 19th century, or really up to the New Deal, we had entitlements that were exclusively for veterans of wartime service. And so the very first entitlement, Revolutionary War uh, pensions, was designed to compensate uh, veterans who had been injured in battle uh, and who were members of the Continental Army or Navy. And that sounds like a good thing, right? Very, uh, a very uh, regarded as a necessary, economically mm -hmm. necessary uh, measure to attract soldiers uh, into the into the uh, Revolutionary War. And then it was, it was uh, uh, ratified uh, by the uh, United States government after we uh, formed the new, new government. Uh, and it was also regarded as a moral obligation. Uh, for an individual who had uh, injured in battle, uh, defending uh, his or her country, uh, it was regarded as a moral obligation. If a soldier had been killed in battle, the survivors of that soldier, the widow of that soldier, would also uh, be entitled uh, to receive a, uh, a benefit under the program. That type of program was enacted for each and every war during the 19th century. So we had a Revolutionary War pension program, a pension program for 1812 soldiers, one for the Mexican-American War soldiers. And the biggest yeah. one, of course, was for um, the Civil War uh, veterans. It's very interesting that each of these entitlement programs followed a almost the exact same evolution over time. At first, the beneficiaries were a fairly narrowly prescribed group. I.e. the soldiers that were, were injured in battle and uh -huh. the widows of soldiers that were killed in battle, right? That makes sense, right? Right. In each case, over time, the entitlement was expanded to broader and broader groups of veterans. And in each case, eventually, Congress got to the point where it extended disability payments to all veterans of each of these wars. So let me give you a specific sort of example of how it worked with yeah. the uh, Revolutionary War uh, program. So as I said, it started off with eligibility just for soldiers of the Continental Army and Navy who had been injured in battle, okay? It okay. left out the militia. So various state militias had a big role in the Revolutionary War. They so must have been livid. That's they, almost and they were, and they lobbied the government for benefits. And mm -hmm. eventually, um, around 1806, Congress extended benefits to members of the military of the uh, uh, militia. Militia, yeah, right on the grounds that they were no uh, less uh, worthy of assistance than those uh, that had been in the Continental Army. That's and like then, increasing the radius of the circle. Yes, yes. And so uh, in 1818, then, 
uh, Congress then extended benefits further for Revolutionary War veterans, said that if you were poor and you were disabled, whether you had been, your disability was a consequence of wartime service or not, you should receive benefits. And then you like this, in 1832, so this is almost 50 years after the end of the Revolutionary War, Congress enacted the Universal Service Pension Law, which granted pensions to all soldiers who were in the Revolutionary War. That's kind of tricky because many of them have died by 1832. Is that right? <laughs> well, you'll love this. So, so you're right. That's what Congress thought at the time. They thought, my goodness, it's been 50 years since the war's end. Life expectancy at the time was around age 60. Most of the veterans that were still alive, the few that were still alive, I mean, the average would have been at age 75, 76. Yeah. Right? And so they thought there'd be very few. Well, of it course. turns out after the law was enacted, all of a sudden applications for benefits start coming in from all over the country. From whom? Pardon me? From who? from these veterans that were still around or claiming to be still around. <laughs> so in any event, they ended up with something like 24,000 applications. They expected maybe less than 10,000 at most. They ended up with 24,000 applications. The expenditures uh, from the law in the first year it was put in place were about four times the expected expenditures. And wow, so large- X. Yeah, so large was the number of veterans that came forth to claim benefits that John Quincy Adams, who was a former president, mm -hmm. uh, he was back in the House of Representatives uh, at the time. Um, he remarked that his old friend Uriah Tracy used to say that the soldiers of the revolution live forever, that they were <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be the case here. Had Uriah just, lived, had Uriah lived to today, he would say that the soldiers multiply with time. <laughs> well, that that quote gets better, uh, Professor Cogan. I just want to go over this timing uh, history. The war officially ends in the Revolutionary War. Officially ends in 1783. Yorktown is a couple of years before that. Yeah, you're telling me this is happening in 1832. That's some darn good longevity. <laughs> were these uh, were these fake applications? Were they no nope. kids or relatives or the vast majority of the applicants uh, were approved uh, by the pension office, and so uh -huh. there was not much discussion with respect to the um, uh, the Revolutionary War pensions, uh, not much of the discussion uh, about uh, fraud and abuse. Yeah, that would come revolution. later. It would come later, okay. Yeah, not for the Revolutionary War. But as I said, this pattern of gradually expanding the entitlement um, was a phenomenon present in all of these 19th century veterans uh, uh, programs. Um, the biggest, the largest entitlement of, of that era was, of course, the Civil War of Veterans Entitlement. That program started off exactly the same way as the Revolutionary War Pension Program. Only Union soldiers, of course, Confederate soldiers need not apply. But only <laughs> Union soldiers who um, were injured in battle and their survivors, if they were killed in battle, were eligible to receive a pension. And so the war was a very large one, of course, for, for America. And I think by the mid-1870s, when it would have been the case that anyone who had been injured in the war or a spouse of someone that had been killed in the war would have applied for benefits, there were around 250,000 veterans and their widows and survivors on the rolls. And Congress, wow. okay. and Congress went about expanding the program. By the 1890s, now this is 25 years after the war had ended, there were over a million recipients of Civil War pensions. Civil War pensions accounted in the 1890s 
for about 40% of all federal spending. They had massively expanded, they had massively expanded benefits to virtually all Civil War Union soldiers. So this is the 1890s. How long did this uh, Civil War pension program continue then? <laughs> well, that's coming out of woodworks here. <laughs> that's right. And so, as I said, they granted pensions to, uh, to survivors. And so, believe it or not, the last recipient of a Civil War pension just passed away in 2020. I'm sorry? Now, Say that again? The last recipient of a Civil War pension passed away in 2020, about two years ago. <laughs> and what how is that even possible it's a great story so the lady's name was irene triplett and her father was mose triplett mose actually signed up originally in the war for the confederacy so he fought for the confederacy and then towards the end of the war he deserted the Confederacy and switched over and joined the Union Army, <laughs> where he fought for more than six months. So when Congress, he wasn't injured, when Congress expanded benefits years, decades later, to virtually all Union soldiers who had served uh, uh, during the war, um, uh, he became eligible. And then in the 1920s, when he was 78 years old, he met the love of his life, <laughs> Elida <laughs> Hall. Elida Hall. 78 was, years old? Right. How, old Elida, was the love, how old was the woman? I'm sorry, I'm, I, I'm interrupting you. I'm just intrigued here. So uh, Elida was 28 years old. It was one of those May to December weddings that were actually quite, quite common <laughs> in the 1920s. Right? And so uh, they had a daughter. Irene. And Irene, being the daughter of a Union soldier, was entitled to a survivor benefit when that soldier passed away. And so uh, Mose Triplett passed away, I believe, in 1938. Uh, and uh, and um, Irene then received a pension for the rest of her days. You can't make really, this up, Professor Kogan. This is a wild story. It's, it's truly unbelievable. But her pension wasn't that great. I think it towards the end, it got up to around $80 a month. So it was a very low, low pension. But it's very important to understand. She's a very good example of just how long a tail these entitlement programs have. The Civil War pension program, its expenditures didn't peak until right around World War One, because they kept expanding the program and increasing benefits over time. And so when they start these programs, even though we know they're going to have an end at some point, because eventually all Civil War soldiers would pass on, it's a very, very long time in each of these wars. So the way these examples that you share with me worked is that you start with a specific group that has truly earned uh, some sort of assistance, call it entitlement, whatever, uh, yes. that, how, however you wish to identify it. But then other groups, whether they lobby, whether there's other motivations with them from the government, they start associating with that core group and this sort of circle of people that get this entitlement grows, gets bigger and bigger and bigger, kind of concentric circles that gets wider. Did I, did, did I sort of uh, explain that correctly? It's a very apt description, very apt description. I call the phenomenon the equally worthy claim. Equally worthy claim. And so the way that the equally worthy claim works is as follows. As you said, Adele, when, when an entitlement program is begun, it's eligibility is fairly narrowly prescribed. But then over time, individuals and groups of individuals that represent uh, uh, people 
that are just outside of that eligibility boundary line start clamoring for benefits on the grounds that they are no less worthy of assistance than the people that are getting assistance. Eventually, Congress acquiesces and the eligibility boundary line is expanded. But all that does is bring another group of individuals right up to outside of that boundary line. And the process repeats itself over and over again until the entitlement is expanded to such a, a point where its original purposes are hardly recognizable in the program. Um, we talked about uh, entitlement programs for American veterans and their uh, families. In the interest of time, I'm wondering if you could just uh, briefly tell me if there was a pivotal moment in which um, other programs that we were so familiar with, you sort of went through an alphabet soup a listing of a Medicaid, Medicare. When did they uh, splash into the, onto the scene? Yes, good question. So as I said, throughout the 19th century, in fact, up until the New Deal, entitlements were exclusively for individuals that had performed some government service, mainly veterans. Yeah. The New Deal then broke uh, new ground. By we're talking about 1930s FDR. Right, right, 1932, 33, right, to 1940 was when the mm -hmm. expansions or the liberalizations occurred. And so, uh, but they broke new ground in the following sense. They expanded the idea of an entitlement to members of the general population, to individuals that had not performed any government service in the past. So social security benefits were extended to senior citizens, welfare assistance for lower income individuals and unemployment benefits. And these are Americans that may not have worked for the federal government at all. Right, that's right, that's right. And so that was sort of a, a, major, a major hinge point in the growth of entitlements because before they were confined Yeah right, to, uh, to people that had performed some service. Now, members of the general population were eligible. And so a bevy of entitlements, social security, unemployment insurance, and welfare were all created in the New Deal. And they were the major New Deal programs. That's so interesting because if you look at the Great Depression, uh, President Hoover that came right before it, he, he and some of the his, his, his colleagues and his sort of ideology was that we shouldn't even give people too much. Um, why don't we take a short break and then talk about the politics of entitlement programs? If Congress passes a stimulus package, say something similar to President Biden's stalled Build Back Better program, how will that impact inflation? Professor Sheffy, director of MIT's Supply Chain Management Program, talks about that in season one episode 36. And now that we do have an infrastructure plan, what are the challenges ahead? And what's the history of America's infrastructure? Like a bridge across the Atlantic. It's no joke. As Professor Petrosky of Duke University tells us in Season 1, Episode 33, a bridge across the Atlantic was an openly discussed possibility more than 100 years ago. For your convenience, we have also organized these episodes into a U.S. Economy podcast series, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. And here's another one. How did our student debt problem become a crisis? Professor Shermer of Loyola University, Chicago, explains this in Season 2, Episode 2. She's the author of the following book. Ready for its title? It's a serious one indentured students. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Kogan. Professor Kogan, I want to talk about your book, uh, the title of which is The High Cost of Good Intentions, A History of U.S. Federal Entitlement Programs. Has it truly been a history of good intentions? I mean, we went through almost two centuries of it, or has it really been 
pragmatic politics and pressure to expand social welfare for political gain? Well, it's been a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. The original enactment of an entitlement program, I've always felt, comes from good intentions. Wartime veterans, senior citizens. Of course, yeah. To poverty. But once an entitlement is in place, and I think politics takes over. And there's this inevitable pressure to expand the entitlement. Members of Congress see an entitlement program as a, as a wonderful uh, opportunity to win support uh, by the <laughs> recipients. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, the Republicans uh, benefited greatly uh, from the Civil War pension program. They were firm supporters of the uh, pensions, and the Democrats at the time uh, didn't support expanded pensions. Who uh, knew? Go figure. Wow. Wow. Yes. And so, uh, so the Republicans, in fact, had a, uh, you know, they were the party of high tariffs mm-hmm. and the party of high pensions uh, for Union soldiers. If you recall, um, Governor Mitt Romney uh, had. <laughs> Had a hot mic moment uh, when he was running uh, uh, for for um, the presidency, in which he criticized the growing size of America's entitlement programs. Uh, and uh, you just told me that you know Republicans actually benefited greatly from the Civil War uh, veteran pension program. Do Republicans have Republicans continued to sort of uh, indulge? in entitlements for political purposes? Or has it become a democratic thing now? It's become more of a democratic phenomenon mm-hmm. uh, during, the, uh, during the 20th century. Uh, as we said, the, the major pivot point was the New Deal. Uh, and that was Roosevelt, a Democrat, and a Democratic Congress passing the New Deal legislation. And then came the uh, Great Society, uh, which was another uh, period Johnson. of new entitlements. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid were enacted, food stamps were enacted uh, during uh, that era, another uh, time where there was a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president. But in the years since, Republicans have have joined in, uh, not so much in uh, creating new entitlements, although they have, uh, but really in uh, maintaining or expanding existing entitlements. People don't appreciate enough that Richard Nixon was every bit as liberal when it came to entitlements as Lyndon Johnson was. Uh, oh, come on, really? Nixon? Richard Nixon had a very expansive uh, agenda. Richard Nixon uh, nationalized a very small, at the time, food stamp program. He created the Supplemental Security Income Entitlement Program, taking it over from the states. Uh, He established uh, Medicare benefits for disabled individuals. Uh, He wanted to make Medicare free so no individuals would have to pay for Medicare Part B uh, physician services. He wanted a universal basic income, uh, and Congress was unwilling to go along with the last- Universal basic income. That's radical even now. Exactly. Yeah. And so and then, of course, uh, we've had Democrats in the years since uh, that have restrained entitlements or reformed them. Bill Clinton and welfare reform would be a very good example. And we've had presidents on the Republican side that have expanded uh, entitlements. Uh, George W. Bush's expansion of Medicare to cover prescription drugs is uh, is an example of, of that. And so in the last, I would say, 40, 50 years, 50 years, it's been more or less a bipartisan um, effort uh, to expand uh, or maintain at, at the minimum entitlement uh, programs. But it seems like the rhetoric comes more from the Democratic side. Yes. yes right. um, given all the politics here, are entitlements now perceived as a right in America? They certainly are. It certainly are. And uh, uh, maybe uh, not, maybe they shouldn't be so um, uh, thought of. Uh, Let's take a very sensitive one, uh, Social Security and Medicare. 
Boy, both are sensitive. Yeah. Have most parents. people think that the benefits have been earned. That is, uh, they've been paid for by uh, payroll taxes uh, that individuals have made throughout their working lives. Individuals have paid a lot of payroll taxes into the system. But here's a statistic for you. You take the typical, the average senior citizen couple, husband and wife, who reaches age 66 this year, they will receive in Social Security and Medicare benefits, benefits that are worth more than $1 million in present value terms. Over the comparison to what they put in, right? Pardon me? In comparison to what they put in, it's a lot more than. No, no. Just they would have paid in probably about half of that. I see. Okay. And so they've paid in, so they've earned a benefit. But the benefit they're getting from both programs combined, especially Medicare, uh, is uh, a very large sum of money. Now, there are more than 50 million seniors that are out there receiving Social Security benefits. And so you ask yourself, how can a society afford providing the typical couple who reaches age uh, 66 uh, benefits that over their life, rest of their lifetime, be worth a million? We have a whole segment, next segment coming up about the economics of entitlement. So I want us to talk about that. But before we go there, uh, I just have another question that's just really basic so i hope you don't think it's too rudimentary why aren't these entitlement programs working i mean i just vacationed in san francisco over christmas with my family there are a lot of homeless there i i think we we err on the side of being human if you will that is we see a need out there and we want to fix it but we don't see enough of is the incentives that are created when we try to fix a problem. And so if San Francisco opens up its um, streets and its sidewalks and public buildings to the homeless, you should expect to get more homeless because on the margin, you'll be helping people, certainly keeping them safe in some respects but you will be also be creating an incentive for other people to join in the recipiency of those benefits. And I think we need to have a balance between helping individuals and recognizing that when you do so, you create incentives that are not necessarily in the long run interest of the recipients themselves. And they may actually be very costly. And so you have to be balancing these two aspects of entitlements. And you have to do it with all programs. But when you create a legal right to a benefit, that's something special. And you can create very bad incentives. That, that kind of takes us, back and takes us back to the title of your book, The High Costs yes. of Good Intentions. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the economics of entitlements. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Kogan, what percentage of U.S. budget is allocated to entitlements now? So of all federal spending right now, which is, let's set aside the pandemic spending for the moment, but about two thirds of the federal budget before the pandemic was spent on entitlement programs. Two thirds? Two thirds of the budget. You know, people think that the defense budget 
it occupies uh, the lion's share of revenues. And that's just not so. Defense spending is now about one sixth of the federal budget. And entitlement spending is four times that amount and growing much faster. In fact, uh, I don't need an, another episode to talk about U.S. debt. You just explained it right there. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's exactly right. If you're if you're looking for an explanation of the growth Truth in the emerged. national debt, you don't have to look any farther than entitlement programs. It is the sole source of the growth of government federal government spending relative to GDP since World War II. All of the growth in government spending relative to GDP can be accounted for by the increase in entitlement benefits. So how are they budgeted? How do you, I mean, you know, okay, you need to build a bridge, it costs this much, there's some cost overruns, but how do you budget entitlements then? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> a very good question. The, the, if you think about, uh, as you would, a battleship, or uh, an education grant, um, the way we budget for that is there's a fixed amount of money appropriated, and then that's allocated among uh, uh, alternative individuals or institutions yeah, yeah. or to a contractor. There's a fixed amount. And sometimes you have cost overruns, but uh, initially you start out with a fixed amount. With entitlements, it's very different. There's no fixed amount. Entitlement spending what is for all practical no purposes. Amount? Open, it's open-ended. It depends solely upon the number of people that come forth to claim their legal right to benefits times the amount of benefits that they're claiming, right? And so there's no fixed oh, wow. budget for entitlements. It's I mean, that's, that you gave the Civil War example and, and the Revolutionary War pension yes. example in 1832, but isn't it still the case? That's still, that's sort of not knowing how many people are going to apply for this benefit. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. My goodness. Right. And there's a, another problem with entitlements. For the defense budget, Congress reviews that budget and sets a fixed amount annually. And that's true for Head Start uh, and a lot of NIH budget, the NASA mm -hmm. budget, they're fixed amounts. Uh, that are appropriated each year. Entitlements, by and large, are permanently appropriated. Most entitlement spending has a permanent appropriation. So Congress need not take any action to continue the entitlement. And so it doesn't have to review the entitlement. The spending occurs automatically. So Social Security, my Lord, Congress has not made any serious, taken a serious look at changing the program in 20 years. I, I'm just baffled. I, I mean, pretty much all laws, especially budgetary, they, they usually have a, a review, I don't know, like a sunset period or a review sort of deadline that right. you look at it did this work you know look at nih look at everything right and you're right. saying that's not really the case with it's entitlement. really not the case you know you, you often hear that uh you often hear that um uh, congress uh has passed a budget or has passed a continuing resolution that doesn't have anything to do with most of the entitlement spending it has to do with the NIHs and the NASAs and the Head Start type of program. Because the entitlement, spend, uh, entitlement spending is already there. Yes, right. That's right. And it's going on. The Congress has an interesting term that they use to categorize entitlement programs. They call entitlement programs mandatory programs. And they call the rest of the budget, the one-sixth of the budget that is for domestic purposes and the one-sixth that's for defense purposes, they call that discretionary spending. Oh, and so uh, one is oh. subject to annual appropriations and the other, for all practical purposes, is, uh, is not. And, uh, and that's one reason that these entitlement programs 
grow out of control is because they're not given the same kind of scrutiny that the Appropriations Committee gives to the um, discretionary programs. Professor Kogan, how does this compare to other countries? I'm not looking for like, you know, super detailed stats, just generally. Yeah, it's a good question. The uh, over Europe has been, I will call it, ahead of us uh, temporarily uh, in the creation of entitlements uh, and in these large social insurance entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare and disability. And so their their uh, programs, uh, in fact, eat up a larger share of their spending uh, than. Uh, total spending than ours do. Now, I have to say that at the same time, uh, they have reached their limits, uh, whereas we are still grappling with reaching our limits. And so what you've seen, especially in Scandinavian countries, you've seen some retrenchment on entitlements, some worry about how liberal their disability program has uh, have become, and so there's a good example a of that is Sweden, which you and I discussed during the break. Yes, yes. One consequence, by the way, uh, for the United States that we have to be very worried about now, uh, that Europe has not had to worry about up until now, because mm-hmm. partly of the United States, and that's the defense budget. As we have expanded entitlements, uh, the defense budget's share uh, of the total budget has gone steadily down. Uh, The share of GDP that's devoted to defense has gone uh, steadily down. Just as in Europe, what we're seeing is entitlements are squeezing out little by little the defense budget. Uh, And that should worry every American. I don't think we've reached a point where we should be um, uh, worried that we're unable uh, to defend ourselves. Uh, But I will say this, uh, the defense budget could sure use uh, some modernization and some increases uh, and entitlements, uh, I think, can be subject to some uh, retrenchment uh, to finance that. With with the um, continued uh, belligerence of both China and Russia and countries like Iran, uh, we definitely need a robust defense budget. Um, When I asked you to compare our entitlement spending, you gave the example of Europe and you know Northern Europe and uh, Western Europe. But that's from my perspective, as I share with you before we started uh, during a break, I was an entrepreneur, lived in Northern California, a former uh, patent attorney. So I'm very used to our robust economy, inventions, innovations, the whole of Europe doesn't even compare to some of our states. I mean, I'm exaggerating. I appreciate. So um, what, what are these entitlement programs doing to our economy? Um, take productivity. Are they increasing it, decreasing it? I don't want the U.S. to be like Sweden or Finland or not even the U.K. Japan. So there are two ways which entitlements adversely affect the economy. One is they have to be financed either through higher taxes or the issuance of debt. And we've taken the road of mainly debt. <laughs> taxes is a no-no politically, right? Right. That's right. Right. Both of these means of financing are harmful to the economy. Clearly taxes end up Uh, harming incentives for investment, savings, work, and so forth, and therefore productivity uh, and an economy suffers. It's also the case that debt impairs a country's ability uh, to uh, be productive. And so, and that's a, a very important lesson from history, is that most countries that have ended up with excessive amounts of debt have experienced at best, little growth, and that applies to Japan today. A lot of people say, well, my gosh, Japan's debt is 200% of GDP. We don't really have to worry about it. Japan's doing fine. We're only at 100% of GDP. But if you look over the last two decades, uh, three decades, uh, Japan's growth rate has been anemic, very slow. Dismal, yeah. Yeah, Um, Professor Kogan, as as you were sharing uh, 
the, the budgetary impact of entitlement programs. And I think you saw the expression on my face, my blood was sort of boiling. But having said that, I'm what you would call a liberal guy. Yet, I, I'm, I'm just concerned about the inefficiency of all of this and how unwieldy it has become. I guess I'm feeling a little guilty. And I want to ask this. Are we, is it, let me ask it this way. Is it uncompassionate or insensitive to have this conversation? Sort of, you know, talking about limiting the growth of entitlement programs or even paring back some of the existing ones. I hope not. I hope that we're able to have a conversation that recognizes that there is a proper role for entitlements in our society. Every modern government has entitlement programs to help the poor and those that cannot provide for themselves. And so we should have such a safety net. The question is, have we expanded this safety net to too large an extent? So let me give you a a statistic. So before the pandemic, over half of the U.S. population was living in households that were receiving some federal entitlement benefit. Half of the U.S. population? Half of the U.S. population. Now, if you take out people age 65 and older, because all of them are getting, pretty much all of them, 90% of them are getting Social Security uh, and or Medicare. Take them out of the equation and just look at the under age 65 population, the younger population, the working age population, whatever you want to call it. It's over 40% of the working age population is now receiving some federal entitlement assistance. Only 20% of all federal entitlement assistance now goes to alleviating poverty. Only 20%? Only 20% goes to alleviating poverty. The rest goes to people that were before the assistance above the poverty line or we provided individuals who were below the poverty line with so much assistance that it raised them above the poverty line. One final number. Each year, the federal government spends about $700 billion of entitlement system uh, assistance on people who are in the upper half of the income distribution in the United States. Wait, say that again, On in the upper half? Yes, so $700 billion each year to individuals that are in the upper half of the U.S. income distribution. So we can Am have- Am I getting an entitlement program and I don't know? <laughs> How's this happening? Are you missing out? <laughs> Am I missing out? <laughs> so, Go ahead, so, sir. Right, so, so the point here is that we should be able to have an informed discussion about our entitlement system without being accused, one side accusing the other side of lacking compassion. The system has grown so large and is so complex that what we need to do is to have a reasoned discussion about where the money is is going. It's a very difficult, very difficult thing to do, obviously, but but I think it's needed. But I don't think compassion or lack of compassion is something that necessarily uh, motivates uh, people uh, that talk about um, uh, retrenching or uh, cutting back on on entitlements or just slowing slowing their growth. Um, I wanted to get your uh, brief clarification on one point. Um, are you a lone voice in the academic circles? I'm not talking about politics. We know what right. Republicans and but in the academic circles. Um, or is 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 there a sort of a movement of scholars such as yourself, including those that are ethnic backgrounds, immigrants, and African Americans that are talking about this? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, there are. First, as a general matter, um, I think most economists are concerned about the growth of entitlements and the consequential growth in debt. Uh, and and in taxes. I think economists recognize the cost side of it. 
and so I think that's widely shared among, among economists. What to do about it, there's a lot of differences. Uh, you asked about um, African-American minority um, uh, economists that have, uh, or scholars uh, that have yeah. raised uh, issues of concern. Yes, in fact, uh, Tom Soul, who is here at Stanford, uh, uh-huh. has been writing, uh, African-American economist has been writing on the dangers of entitlements, not so much from the fiscal standpoint, but from the damaging incentives side that, it, that these entitlements create for the individual recipients. His focus and another scholar, Glenn Lowry, um, who's uh, at Brown University, uh, they have focused on the, the damage or the harm uh, that these entitlements can do to recipients by um, uh, disincentivizing work, uh, by um, uh, disincentivizing uh, self-sufficiency uh, and self-improvement. I, 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 can, I can see how these conversations and these scholarships uh, can become very politically charged. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Kogan as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Kogan, it seems that entitlement programs are innate to democracies, such as ours. Uh, That's how politicians secure votes. So where do we go from here? You know, we just talk about uncompassionate, whether this is uncompassionate and sensitive. How do we fix this burgeoning problem? Well, my sense is that first we have to all agree that there is a problem. And I'm not sure that society <laughs> is all there yet. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, great point. Uh, but I do think that, you know, if you look back at the past and you ask, have entitlements been reformed in the past so as to slow their growth, which I think is a necessary uh, step that we have to take is to slow the growth of these entitlements and let the economy grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the economy grows, we'll have more resources with which to finance entitlements. Uh, and there'll be less of a need uh, for entitlements as wages and living conditions improve. So any discussion about what do we do has to begin with ensuring that our economy can grow in a strong way. Uh, but it also uh, has, there has to be reform. Uh, economic growth cannot solve this problem for us. We have to have uh, reform. We can look to the past and, and find reforms. And I'll uh, give you two examples or maybe three examples very quickly of reforms. The single largest reduction in any entitlement program in American history was achieved by Franklin Roosevelt. FDR? FDR. He started the New Deal. Yes. Oh, wow. So Franklin Roosevelt had a view that soldiers who had been disabled in wartime service were deserving of special assistance from the United States government. But he did not believe that soldiers who were not injured during war were so entitled. His view was service for your government is part of being a citizen. And that should not entitle you in and of itself to any assistance. And before he became president, Congress had expanded the World War I entitlement program for disabled veterans to veterans who were disabled, but their disability had nothing to do with their wartime service. Did he scrap it? In 1933, Roosevelt asked Congress to give him the authority, the unilateral authority to cut back on entitlement, on, on the veterans entitlement eligibility. Congress gave them that within the first 100 days. 
And Roosevelt then issued regulations and he knocked 400,000 veterans off the rolls within the space of about a year. The largest reduction in any entitlement. In the middle of the Great Depression. Yes, yes. So it can be done. He was compassionate. He was a compassionate man. Yeah, and he yeah. had a jobs program, as you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but he had his uh, philosophical view uh, that uh, the soldiers who were not injured in war they were doing their citizens' uh, duty and uh, and should not receive assistance. So Franklin Roosevelt was a remarkable man in so so many respects, and uh, he was able then through the rest of his administration to hang on to those reductions, even though Congress was enacting uh, bill after bill to restore these to, veterans to bring them to back. roles. He would veto them. You said you had three examples in the short time, the remaining right. time that we have. Second have- one, of course, was Ronald Reagan. Uh, oh, Ronald course, Reagan yeah. took office uh, in the midst of the worst economic times that we had had since the Great Depression. Inflation was running at double digits. Unemployment was rising. Uh, the uh, prime rate of interest was over 20%. Uh, federal spending had gone way up in the 1970s as a consequence of the Johnson-Nixon Great Society programs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so President Reagan then had an across-the-board approach uh, to reducing eligibility for entitlement benefits but primarily eligibility for those individuals who are well above the poverty line. And so Reagan had viewed that the the problem was that eligibility had been extended too far up the economic ladder. And so his reforms were to reduce the benefits to those who he did not believe were in need of assistance. Uh, He was largely successful. Kind of makes sense two years, and then hung on to most of the, uh, uh, the changes he had made for the rest of his administration. The third change, of course, was President Bill Clinton, uh, who actually eliminated the individual entitlement to cash welfare assistance for single mothers. And Clinton's belief was that the provision of so much assistance to single mothers had created an incentive for these single moms to not get married and to not return to the labor force, because if they did, they would lose their benefits. That sounds like the Republican ethos nowadays, right? That's right. That's right. But President Clinton in his campaign pledged to end welfare as we know it. That was his term. Uh, He then fought his own party uh, to get the initiatives enacted. As you recall, the Republicans took over the House and the Senate in the 1994 elections, he worked primarily with them to enact this bipartisan uh, reform of of the uh, welfare program for single moms. And by the way, I have to say, it's been the most successful welfare reform, I think, in the history of the country. Really? In terms of its effects on individuals, that is, if you look at the data after um, welfare reform was was passed and compared to before welfare reform was passed, what you find is that single mothers started working much more after the reform. And so the, once the incentive for them to remain out of the labor force was removed, they started working more uh, and they started earning higher wages. Uh, and so welfare went down, self-sufficiency went up, and it was a good thing. And it wasn't just the change of in- incentives. I have to say that at the local level, the job of the welfare worker was changed as a consequence of this law. The welfare worker, their job became one of helping their client, the welfare recipient, get back into normal life. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Get some training, get some educational help. Uh, So they viewed their job not as making sure this person qualified for the entitlement benefit, making sure there was no uh, fraud going on. It became one of helping the individual recipient get back on their feet, 
get back in the labor force through training, education, or jobs. Those are three great examples. Our, our politicians should read up on those uh, more yes. often. You should, you should submit more uh, opinion pieces, which I've enjoyed uh, reading yours in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Professor Kogan, if you wanted to, uh, our audience, to remember just one point about entitlements after everything we've discussed, <laughs> what would that be? One point. One point. Uh, and we've talked about this it kind of as a theme throughout, the, uh, throughout our conversation, Adele. Mm-hmm. It's we have to have a system that helps individuals get back on their feet when they're temporarily knocked off their feet. We have to have a compassionate safety net. We mm-hmm. have to have one that prevents poverty in old age and that prevents people from pro- falling into prolonged poverty when they're younger. At the same time, we have to moderate our passion of helping people with the realization that these programs can cost a lot not just in terms of resources that society spends, but also in terms of the lost opportunity for those people who entitlement programs move in the wrong direction, a direction that's against their long-term self-interest. Professor Kogan, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel Out News. Adele, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well, sir. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At thepeel.news, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you We're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the PL.News.